0: Well, tell you what, since everyone else is so casual this morning, let me, all right, there we go. Do <laughs> you take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 2. Coming back now to our study through the book of 1 Peter, of course, I was out for a number of weeks, spending time in Uganda, and then last week we were, had the privilege of observing the Lord's table together, but this week we get the joy of stepping back into our study through the book of 1 Peter. We began this on the first Sunday of this year, and now today we come to the text that ends 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 18 through 25. It's really a joy for us as Christians to be able to listen to Peter speak to those scattered suffering saints in Asia Minor. And I think one of the reasons that I am so thrilled, just absolutely thrilled enthralled with this letter is the fact that Peter is so wonderfully encouraging. He is writing to these Christians and he reminds them that they are not saints by accident. He reminds them that neither are they scattered or suffering by accident. Actually, these things are in perfect accord with the plan and the purpose of Almighty God. Now, before we step into our text this morning, I, I just want to remind you of the theme of this letter. It's actually very important that you remember the theme of this letter or else what is come today will really not make any sense to you. The theme of the letter is communicated back in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You need to remember, friends, you and I need to remember this morning that when God made you a Christian, He did so for his purposes, and his purpose is primarily that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There you are, Peter says, in the outer reaches of the Roman Empire, and you're finding yourself dealing with the various discouragements, the difficulties, the hardships, the heartaches there in Asia Minor. But dear ones, he says, you are not outside of the plan and the purpose of God. Very rightly, Peter could be saying the same thing. In fact, is saying the same thing to you and I this morning. Those who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ have been sovereignly called out by God wherever they may be in order to proclaim his excellencies. When we studied that a number of weeks ago, we said that we are called to be like a billboard of sorts. We're supposed to be a billboard which publishes something about the superiority or the supremacy of the one true God in a world that is filled, absolutely filled with lesser gods. That's what this letter is really all about. It's about people who have been called out of darkness Into his light to proclaim something about his superiority. It's about coming to understand. That we've not become Christians by accident. But rather by divine intention. That divine intention. Is that we might extol the glorious attributes of God. In such a way that demonstrates. He is superior to all other people. He is superior to all other pursuits. He is superior to all others other possessions. And how does that happen? That's the question. How do we do that? How do we say something about the supremacy, the superiority of God? That's the point that we're in now in this practical section of the letter, which really begins in chapter 2, verse 11. And, and folks, it's not cliche, but he's talking here about where the rubber meets the road for the Christian. This is the application section of the letter. A few weeks ago, I told you that I suppose the rest of the letter could could summarize or really summarizes the four ways in which we are billboards for the supremacy or the superiority, the excellencies of God. Our lives are intended. Our lives as Christian. If you are a genuine Christian today, our life is intended to advertise the superiority of the almighty God. You were called were chosen to publish his abounding excellence above and beyond. As I said, every other person, every other pursuit and every other uh, possession. And that happens in four ways. What Peter does through the rest of the letter is he shows us the four ways that that can happen. He says, first of all, verse 11 and 12, it happens in your sanctification. It happens as you pursue a holy life, your holy life. Trumpets the supremacy of God. Why? God is better than sin. Praise the Lord. God is better than sin. God is better than giving into the passions of your flesh. You proclaim, I proclaim something of His supremacy in our day to day holy living, our sanctification. But a couple of weeks ago, then, we came to the next section, which begins in verse 13. Where we not only learn that we proclaim something of the supremacy of God through our sanctification. But we proclaim something of the supremacy of God through our submission. Our submission. It's our willing submission to governing authorities. Listen. Go back. If you weren't here or if you've forgotten, go back and listen to that again. It's very important. It is our our willing submission to governing authorities by which we say something about the supremacy of God. And that theme of submission continues to our text today. He says, you say something about the supremacy of God through your sanctification, through your submission, through your suffering, which is going to be introduced to us today as well. And then finally, to uh, by your serving. Well, I want you to look at the text today, verses 18 through 25. This is not going to be the only day that we're in this text. We're going to be here for a little while. So don't be concerned that we're trying to take a big section and think you might not get all of it out. We're going to get everything that's here. Believe me, we're going to get everything that's here. Look at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, it, uh, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God for to this, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges, judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the Bible. We don't take it for granted. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Make the word live in our hearts. For the glory of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. This morning, we'll find that this text has one great idea. One big thing. What is it? That Christians are to do good even if it means suffering for it, right? That's the big idea. Christians are to do good, even if it means suffering for it. And that theme shines through in four features of this text. There are four features I'm gonna point out to you in this text. Verse 18, you notice it begins with an exhortation. He's like this command. He, He prescribes this command. He exhorts them. And then verses 19 and 20 we see an encouragement. He provides this encouragement. Goes from an exhortation to an encouragement that he provides. 21 through 24 obviously he gives an example. We all saw that with the text we just wrote. He, he presents this example. The example is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he ends verses 24 and 25 with showing us the end that is planned. In other words, the, the, the intent, the goal, the end that has been planned for this kind of exhortation that he gives. Let's look. First of all, at the exhortation he prescribes in verse 18. What is this exhortation? He is exhorting. You see it very clearly. He's continuing on in the thought of this idea of submission that we looked at in verses 13 through 17 a couple of times ago. He's continuing on in this this issue of submission. And he is exhorting servants to be submitting. Servants must submit. As Christians, we learned Last time we were together in 1 Peter, that we, according to verse 16, are primarily, primarily servants of God. And as such, we are called to honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now, there's a practical way that that's accomplished. How is it that we honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. The practical way that is to, this, that's to be accomplished here is by those servants. Now, that word "servants" is not the, the term "doulos," which is typically translated "slave." This is the word that is that, that's probably better translated "house slave" or "house servant." Those house servants who are serving human masters. The way that you do these things is by those house servants who are serving masters, subject themselves to their masters. It is eminently practical what Peter is talking about here. Peter is talking to Christians and many of them are house slaves. Many of them are dependent for their livelihood on a master. Now there are a number of ways that they could have come into this service, But the point is that they are to remain serving their master. In other words, just because they become a Christian doesn't mean they're to disregard their masters. The same is true when he talked about our responsibility to human government. We can't just say, oh, I'm a Christian now, so my real home is not here, it's in heaven, so I'm going to disregard human law. Remember, we we said you can't do that. We are actually supposed to use our heavenly citizenship to speak of something of the greatness of our God. And the same is true when it comes to the practical issues of our day-to-day role in the world. Why? Because of this. Notice what he says. Servants, be subject to your masters, and then this prepositional phrase, with all respect. The word translated respect is the Greek word phobos. And it's almost always used of fearing God. I think the ESV translation here, with all respect, is kind of unfortunate because that word fear is never used to speak of our fear before men. It's almost always used to speak of our fear of God. Chapter two, verse 17, we're called to fear God. Chapter two, verse 19, he speaks of one who is mindful of God. In other words, The reason that we are called to live this life of submission is because we fear God. What do I mean? Look back with me to the book of Colossians. Go to Colossians chapter 3 for just a moment. And I think you'll have a picture of what this is really talking about here. Colossians chapter 3. Begin reading in verse 22. Colossians chapter 3 verse 22. Now, in this case, Paul does use the word doulos, which speaks of just a slave. And he says, slaves, in verse 22, Slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, here it is, fearing the Lord. How do you fear the Lord? By this, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Don't don't fear man is what he's saying. Know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. For there is no partiality. We're not exhorted to fear man. But rather we're exhorted to fear God. We are called to willingly continue to subject ourselves to human masters. Why? Because we fear God. If. The house servant, if the slave was called to do that into the Roman Empire, how much more those who willingly serve masters today via your employment or whatever it might be ought to willingly subject yourself to human masters. Why? Because we realize that we are always in the sight of God, Right? our aim is always to please him what is this exhortation he says servants be submitting but the, and and maybe we can accept that maybe that's kind of plausible until he says servants be suffering servants are to suffer we have a much higher master which is exactly why we willingly subject ourselves to human authorities, to human masters, even when they are crooked. Back to 1 Peter chapter 2. Notice what he says. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, so maybe some of you have good and gentle human masters, but also to the unjust. That word translates the Greek word from which we get our words for scoliosis, the crooked ones right? Obey not only the good and gentle ones, but obey the ones who are crooked. This words speak here of their moral laxity. You can imagine, I'm sure that Peter is speaking to those house slaves who have become Christians and their masters don't like it. So what do the masters do? They set out to make life hard for this Christian. They persecute them. They're harsh towards them. Don't think that just because your life involves suffering, that this is somehow a bad thing. That's what he's telling us. And that's a mouthful, isn't it? Don't think that just because your life involves suffering as a Christian, that somehow that's a bad thing. That absolutely flies in the face of everything that we are as Americans, doesn't it? But Peter says that even if subjecting yourself to a master who is anything but godly, of course, in so far as you're not disobeying God, that's something we already talked about when we talked about our submission to governing authorities. Even if submitting yourself to a master who is anything but godly involves suffering, that doesn't automatically mean that you should stop doing good. You know, you're living this good, godly life, and you suffer for it, you don't say, that's it. I'm done being nice. No more Mr. Nice Guy here. No more of that. I'm finished. I'm going to stand up for myself. No. Why? Because it's often through our suffering that we proclaim something of the excellencies of God who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you understand that suffering is a major theme in this epistle? It's coming up. It's, it's being introduced. We're still talking about the way that we proclaim this, the, the, the supremacy of God through our submission, but he's introducing this subject of suffering because it can't, he can't keep from, from, from it. It's going to come up for the rest of this epistle. When you suffer for the good that you do, that suffering is actually appointed by God. Look at chapter 4, verse, 14, verse 19. If, if you have a hard time with that last statement that you suffer, when you suffer for doing good, you are, you're actually appointed to that by God. Look what he says here in verse 19 of chapter 4. Therefore, let those who suffer, what? According to what? God's, what? Will. will. Just underline that. According to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let me tell you, suffering for doing good and continuing to do good proclaims the excellency of our God, doesn't it? Obedience to him, fearing him is worth more than a bit of temporal comfort. In fact, the temporal comfort is nothing in comparison to the glory of extolling him. The, The Christian slave, the Christian house servant Even if I can bring it down to something lesser but but maybe more applicable to us today, the Christian employee says, fire me if you will, seek to frustrate me if you must, make my life difficult and hard, but I will not compromise the joy of serving my God. Hold, dear master, the Christian says, you are only in the place that you are in by the sovereign appointment of God so that either you may be saved or that you may be confirmed in your judgment. I remain the servant of the Most High God and I remain at your servant. If you fire me, then I'll go on to serve another in the same way. And if you kill me, then you bring me into the presence of the eternal God whom I adore. Now can I get you a glass of cold sweet tea? Why? How how do you do that? Because listen, our lives, every part of our lives, every moment of our lives is an offering unto him. You should understand that when you came to Christ, you didn't come to Christ in order to make your life happy. You came to Christ in order to be made a billboard for his ultimate supremacy. And in that, you will know no greater joy or contentment. So you see this exhortation, and he gives quickly, he moves on to give an encouragement. He provides this encouragement in verses 19 and 20. For, because this is a gracious thing. Two, two times, verse 19 and verse 20. This is a gracious thing. Literally, this is grace, is what he says. Charis. This is grace. What does it mean? It is a grace to endure suffering with your mindset on God and his glory. What is the encouragement he's giving? The encouragement that he's giving is, okay, house slave, you're serving either a good master or maybe you're serving a crooked master and maybe you're suffering for it. This is a thing of grace. (laughs) To which you want to say, Peter, hello? Hello? No, it's not. <laughs> Look what Paul says in Philippians chapter one. Go with me to Philippians chapter one. Philippians chapter one, verse 29. For, Philippians 1, 29, for it has been granted the intensified form of the word we just saw in 1 Peter chapter 2. It has been graced to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. It's a grace. You've been shown favor by God. That's what he's saying. God has shown you this favor to be able to suffer for his name. He has given you a privilege of suffering for Christ's sake. And you don't look very happy about that. You know what the apostles did? Listen, Acts 5.41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name These apostles were not just facing arrest, they were facing death. The council wanted to kill them. They were facing the rage of these authorities who wanted them dead, yet they were rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Christ. So actually, friends, we're to look at the possibility of suffering for doing good as a gift of grace. (laughs) God has entrusted you with a gift. How is that a gift? Can I have another gift, please? How is it a gift? In chapter 4, verse 14 of 1 Peter, he said, you will be blessed. You'll be blessed. In chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, he said, you know what, I've given you this gift, this gift of suffering, so that the testimony... You may have a testimony about a greater hope. In other words, when people see you suffering and they see you continuing to trust Christ and love Christ, they say to you, what is the reason for the hope that is within you? That's why it's a gift. It's a gift so that he might open the door for a testimony for the goodness of God. It's a gift because chapter 4 verse 1 says that there's something purifying about Suffering. Furthermore, chapter 4, verse 14, in suffering is when a Christian comes perhaps to know the greatest, most intimate presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. But mostly what Peter has in mind is, chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, is that this suffering is a blessing because it puts your mind on the prospect of future, eternal blessing. And here's the Here's the rub. Some of us in our minds are weighing the benefits of temporal comfort with the far greater weight of an eternal weight and glory. This is an encouragement. God's given you this as a gift. You've been graced. Not only have you been graced, but he says, to this you have been called. To this you have been called. This is exactly the thing to which you've been called. You've been called to that future glory. That is the Christian calling. Whenever this word call is used in the New Testament, most of the time it's referring to the effectual call of God unto salvation, unto eternal salvation. That's the Christian calling. We're called to glory. We're called to being conformed to the image of Christ. And Peter is saying that this is a great encouragement. What encouragement is this? That we have been called to this. To what? We've been called to this gracious thing that is literally this future glory. So that what Peter is actually doing here is he's giving us this incredible encouragement, this precious encouragement that we have been called to a future glory. And listen, God never fails to follow through with his promise so that no matter your suffering, dear Christian, you will be fully, finally conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So, let us then be up and doing, we have but a few more days, priceless souls of men to rescue from their dark and sinful ways. Courage, brother, work and suffer till the fleeting life is past. God will recompense our labors with a great reward at last. That's the encouragement. That's the encouragement. Tom Schreiner said, so what Peter said here was that believers are called to experience their final reward through enduring suffering. Suffering, in other words, is not a detour by which believers receive the inheritance to which they are called. It is God's appointed means for receiving the inheritance. That's the encouragement. That, that suffering that you endure And you keep doing good, even though maybe every fiber of your fleshly being tells you to rebel and revile in return and curse back, that suffering is a gift from God reminding you that nothing will ever stop God from completing His work in you and through you for His glory. That's what he says. Then he presents us this wonderful example. If that, that encouragement is not enough, he presents us this example. The example of the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 21 through 24, first Peter chapter 2. I, I really am praising the Lord for this, that our minds and our hearts and our eyes are immediately pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ as, and his, his wonderful example. This is just marvelous to me. Notice what he does. He points first to what Christ, as an example, did not do. Verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. What's his an example? What he did not do. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he what? He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He didn't sin. He didn't deceive He didn't revile when he was reviled. He didn't threaten when he was suffering. Can you imagine this? We're just looking briefly now. We're going to come back to this in coming weeks to get some of the more details later. But I want you to see how it's being used in the context. Jesus didn't lie, steal, or cheat. He didn't curse and make all kinds of threatening gestures or intimidating remarks against those who sought to kill him. That's the example. Don't stop doing good even though you serve a crooked boss. If I can just put it for today's idea and understanding. Don't stop doing good. Don't get fed up and quit and give in. Why? Just look to what Christ didn't do and then look to what he did do. What did he do? But, verse 23, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I love that word entrusting. The word is basically means to hand over to the power of another. I think about what Jesus said when he died on the cross as he bowed his head to give up the spirit. He said, Father, into your hands, what? I commend my spirit. He just handed himself over to the Father. The second person of the Trinity, the God-man, confidently trusting in the sovereign power and will of God. That's what we're to do. That's the example we're to follow as we suffer for doing good. We're just give ourselves over to God. And that's a lesson for us. We might face the inevitability of death. Listen, the world can inflict pain and suffering on us, but not outside of the will of God. Scripture tells us that those who desire to live a God-centered life will in fact suffer persecution. They will in fact suffer reproach. January 1999, Hindu extremists near the village of Orissa in the country of India vented their anger against Christianity by burning Australian missionary Graham Staines and his two sons alive in their van as they slept. Some of our dear brothers and sisters in Christ have suffered greatly from horrible diseases before they died. Some have had their jobs taken from them because of their stand for Christ. God has not promised us more than this. But he's also said that he will never leave us nor forsake us. But listen, brothers and sisters, there is coming a day when those things will no longer touch us. Fire can only destroy and burn and kill a body. Cancer can only wreak havoc on a body. Financial distress can only strain a body. But we fear God who not only can kill the body, but will bring the soul into judgment. So friends, listen let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust themselves to a faithful creator. Hand your life over to the power of God and say, God, do, what with, do with it what you will. We've entrusted our souls to the care of, and protection of God. And what has He promised us? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And we... Entrust our souls, we entrust our lives to a faithful creator who will judge justly. And, and, and I remind you, like I reminded you when we talked about the necessity to submit in, to governing authorities, God is perfectly able to keep, keep those whom he is determined to save and to keep those whom he is determined to judge. He's able to do that. And that may be the very thing that God is doing in, in those crooked bosses you have, he may, be, he may be holding them back so that through your suffering, they might see you responding to, to Christ and living for Christ, and maybe God, through that, will bring them to Christ, and he's perfectly able to save that. Or he may be able to stop their mouths and bring them into full righteous judgment in the final day. In fact, You move from the exhortation that he prescribes, the encouragement that he provides, the example that he presents to the end that's planned. And that's exactly what he talks about. Verses 24 and 25. Continuing on this thought of what Jesus did, you see that the death of Christ was not in vain. Praise the Lord. And we'll begin plumbing the depths of this in the coming weeks. I can hardly wait for that. But listen. The Lord Jesus Christ did not die in vain. He did not die in order to hopefully accomplish something. Praise the Lord. He did not die in hopes that something good might come out of it this is a particular redemption a definite atonement that he made on the cross what is the end look what he says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness he what was the plan that was the end our righteousness it's not it's not frustrated That sin might be dismissed from those who believe on him and thus be spiritually and forever healed and granted a righteousness. That was the end. And listen, if God can bring you and I to righteousness, what do you think he does with that crooked master? If he brought a crooked slave, if he brought a crooked employee like you and me to himself, what can he do with a crooked master? If he brought us to righteousness, he can bring them to righteousness, and that's indeed what Christ. Why Christ died on the cross, purposefully. But not only our righteousness, but then he says this: for you, verse twenty-five, we're straying like sheep, but now have returned. Our not only our righteousness, but our return. You have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That you might return, that you might come to the Lord as the supreme sovereign, that you might not only, that you may no longer be out there wandering on the hills, wild and bare, but that you might come under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ and serve him. He did this to make, so that you might become his slave. You see. And guess what? That's exactly the purpose that God has in our suffering. Not only in what he accomplishes in us and for us, but through us. By his grace, he will bring many to Christ as we follow his example in suffering. We don't have to shirk that. We don't have to try to escape it or avoid it. But rather, we continue living godly, righteous lives, doing good, even if it's the source of our suffering. And we know that through that, God will save his own. Praise the Lord. So we're looking at the ways in which we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We do it through our sanctification and we do it through our suffering, uh, or through our submitting. Just continue submitting yourselves. Listen, friends, God is doing a work. Don't lose sight of that. You, you and I can easily lose sight of that. and We forget that God is at work. When we go through difficulties and hardships and heartache and whatever it might be, we go through suffering and we think, is God doing anything? Is God doing anything? Does he see? And we want to give up. We want to give in. We want to quit. We want to stop doing righteously. We want to lo- lash out. We want to revile in return. We want to curse in return. We want to seek to 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 hit back whatever it might be But God says, listen, I am doing a work. Keep, stay in your lane, right? Submit yourselves even when you suffer. Don't stop doing good. I think of three main ways that we might make application this morning. Let me say, first of all, that this text causes us to to see the necessity of considering what it means to be a Christian. I said at the very beginning, I said, you know, the last few sections of this book might have some of us wondering if we really want to be a Christian at all. You mean to tell me that if I'm a follower of Christ, I got to submit to human government? Yep. You mean to tell me if I'm going to be a Christian, I need to submit myself and keep doing good even though I'm suffering in my my employment, whatever my, yeah. And by now, maybe some of you are considering whether you want to be that, that kind of Christian. What kind of Christian? Well, the kind that the Bible describes, which is the only kind of Christian there is. <laughs> you are a follower of Jesus Christ. We're disciples of Christ. will you continue to follow him even if he gives you these kinds of commands? We should consider what it means to be a Christian. Secondly, we should consider that no Christian has a secular job. John MacArthur said this. Let me give you the bottom line. Not one person in this place has a secular job. You do not have a secular job. All you have is a mission field. You don't have a secular job. You have a spiritual calling and your calling is to reach the people where God has placed you and you never do anything to demonstrate anger, hostility, dissatisfaction, discontent, pride, ego, or selfishness. We all offer every day spiritual sacrifices to God in our work and we are called to evangelize and so we must submit and show that we are dutiful and faithful and loyal and obedient and conscientious and anxious and willing and that we serve our employer as if we were serving... Christ, you do not have a secular job. You are in full-time service every day. We must consider what it means to be a Christian. We must consider that no Christian has a secular job. And lastly, we must consider Christ. Don't you love how the writer of Hebrews finishes his letter and he says, looking Unto what? Or who? Looking unto Jesus. You can never do wrong when your eyes are on Christ. When, when you're debating, whether you're, when you're doubting how to live, what to do in this life, you cannot go wrong by just looking to Jesus. And, and live like he would have you to live. And and when you find yourself having failed, as no doubt many of us do often, still look to Jesus. (laughs) Keep your eyes on Christ because he's the author and the finisher of your faith. He's the one who will complete a good work in you. Put your eyes on Christ. You are in full-time vocational service. Go and serve the King. Let's pray together. As we come...